This is episode 91 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Alex Pang and the Four-Day Work Week. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am thrilled to have a guest on the show today who has written a really interesting book uh, that we'll talk more about. But I got so excited when I read this book uh, that I think it might change the world. And it was really honored that the author, Alex Pang, is with us today. And I'll introduce him. He's the author of four books. And his most recent is the one that we'll talk about today. It's called Shorter, Redesign Your Workday, and Reinvent Your Life. There's also been one called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work, and then another one called The Distraction Addiction. Uh, he speaks all around the world about rest and productivity, and he's also the founder of Strategy Plus Rest, which is a consultancy devoted to helping companies and individuals harness the power of rest. And he's also a visiting scholar at Stanford University and has also been a consultant for several think tanks. And finally, he has a PhD in history of science from the University of Pennsylvania. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks very much, Jennifer. It's good to be with you. However, they changed the subtitle of the book. I've noticed several different subtitles. Okay, tell us yeah. about that. So the correct one, the in the U.S., it's shorter work better, smarter, and less, here's how. And then actually in the UK, there's a different one, how working less can revolutionize the way you get things done, which is obviously a play on um, the subtitle of the previous book, Rest. So anyway, marketing people kind of love to kind of workshop these things. And so it, it went through a couple iterations. Yeah, I noticed that. But they all come down to the same thing. And at least the main title is the same, which is shorter. Right. So, so if people remember shorter and Alex Pang, we'll get them there. That's and what this, matters. That's what matters. Exactly. So this topic really resonated with me. And I'll tell this little story first, although I don't usually do this. But as I say, I got very excited about this book. So I'll tell my story. I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about this chronic problem that parents have about picking kids up at school when school get, gets out at three, but we don't get off work until five or sometimes later. And she said to me, you know, I feel really bad about this, that as a society, we haven't been able to solve this problem because it's not really that tough of a problem. She said, I just feel really bad for my son that during his entire childhood, we constantly had this problem of the difference between three and five. And of course, what that means for pickup and Uber and latchkey and nannies and carpool, you know, just goes on and on for every single family. Her observation about that just struck me. And so since then, that thought has come back to me on a number of occasions that Ha ha, you know, and then when I read your book, I thought, well, aha, 
this could be a, a potential solution. Now, to be clear, your book not only talks about six-hour workdays, which would solve my friends and my problem, but you also talk about the four-day work week. That's correct. Yeah. And I, I am looking at companies all over the world who have shortened working hours without cutting productivity or profitability and without cutting people's salaries. And so those are the things that everybody keeps stable. And what you play with is if you go to four days, what day you take off. If you stay with a five-day week, do you do six hours? Do you do even, in some cases, five hours? And how do you make that work in a way that suits both your company and your clients or customers, but also your employees as well? So there's actually a lot of a lot of flexibility and, and kind of variability in how people shorten hours. But across a variety of industries and a number of countries, they manage to do it and they manage to see great benefits from it. You wrote in your book that there is widespread unease with the way work has evolved over the past few decades. And that also really resonated with me. And of course, that's something I pretty much have dedicated this podcast to is trouble at work. Another one of the things in your book that also resonated with me was I was working on kind of an odd job where I was helping to implement an ERP system for a city. And this system was going to be an integrated system. And uh, this particular city had previously worked with a whole kinds of patchwork of, of different computer systems. And I was explaining to a person in the planning department how this new system would make her work so much more efficient because instead of having to go through six different steps and check all these different systems, this integrated system would save her all this time. And, and I was like, isn't this great? <laughs> and her reaction was she sort of gives me this look and she's like, well, you know, that doesn't really do anything for me. And I'm thinking, why? I mean, why wouldn't that be something that you would be really embrace because it would give you extra time for, I don't know, you know, other pet projects or other things you could do. But her reaction was, you know, look, I get my work done in the time that I have and I don't really need any extra time and the system doesn't do anything for me. And it was such an aha moment for me that as you talk about in your book, sometimes the efficiencies from these additional systems or tools they're actually benefiting the organization, not the employee. So tell us, tell us how, when you talk in your book about productivity gains, having gone to owners and not to workers, tell us about that. Well, you know, people who study productivity, labor outputs, economic growth have observed in the last you know, several decades that we've had immense gains in productivity measured by you know, the number of things a factory can turn out or you know, the number of projects a knowledge worker can take on. But also in this period, wages have generally remained flat. They've gone up an awful lot for a, for a relatively small number of people. And of course, I think that the subject of income inequality and the growth of billionaires has been on been a subject of dinner table conversation for lots of people. But one of the things underlying that is 
the fact that gains from automation, gains from faster communication, from sort of better logistics, et cetera, have tended to translate into higher earnings for companies and for shareholders and for executives. Essentially, you know, to kind of build on the story that you tell about the reaction to the enterprise to the ERP system, you know, what's happening is that we get tools that help us become more productive, but what happens also is that people's uh, people's workloads tend to increase. So you can do one job in the time it used to take to do three, but now rather than cutting the number of hours that you work, you simply have to do three times as much of that stuff. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happens is that you get technology, you get technology improvements that get buried under a kind of rubble of bad practice. So I think email is a great example, right? It's very clear that writing an email and sending it is faster than writing an inter-office memo. You know, <laughs> right. you know, type it up, find that crazy envelope, put the, <laughs> you know, the address on it and off you go. Email is a lot more convenient than that. On the other hand, people spend enormous amounts of time managing and dealing with and responding to email. Furthermore, be, thanks to the fact that we now have or of our offices in our pockets, you know, or of courtesy of our smartphones, and that we can reply to these messages at any time of the day or night, we've created a kind of social expectation that we will reply to these at all hours. And so on one hand, the act of composing and sending a message has become far more efficient than it was in the past. But because of the way in which we use it, the effect it has on cultural norms and organizational behavior, email has become this tremendous burden in a way that inter-office memos, I think, probably never were. So you know, between those two things, the conscious effort to use technologies to increase productivity and harvest those gains mainly at the top and increases in the productivity of things that you don't get paid for. No one gets paid for writing email, but which end up generating more work for all of us. This helps explain why it is that we've had you know, a generation of new technologies in the workplace that promise to help us do things faster, but end up putting us in a situation where, where we have to work more. Right. It's almost counterproductive, right? We promised all this, all these benefits to people and instead it's just gotten worse and worse for them. Right. You know, and I think if, you know, if, if people expected it to get worse, then, you know, or if you would kind of calibrate, you'd complain, but you'd, you know, you'd kind of deal. The fact that we, we have been told for years and years that, with the next turn of Moore's law, right, we'll finally solve these problems, or that the next technology will solve the problems that the last technology created. And you know what? They never quite get solved. I think only kind of adds insult to injury. Yeah. One of the things I also liked about your book was that you talk about how workers interpret the things that are presented to them as these great perks, right? Like mobile devices that now make you work everywhere, but also things like free massages or on-site dry cleaning. 
and real benefits like free time and boundaries to work time. Mm-hmm. And you write, a shorter workday is the kind of very tangible benefit that workers need to see after decades of flat wages and growing inequality. So I have to ask you if you have a theory about this. Why haven't we seen a progression toward shorter work hours after World War II as seem to be predicted? And also talk to us about what you think is going to happen in China. Right. I think that the brief story with shorter work hours is that working hours were tending to fall through the 1960s or so, and then that stalled with the oil shock and the recession in the 1970s. So the secular trend started to flatten out then. Another issue was that at about the same time, you have the rise of industries like high-tech, like or of investment banking that offer a new model for how careers should work and how essentially out of how work should be conducted and how we should think about it. To wit, you know, it used to be that you became a success by starting at the bottom in a company, you know, you work your way, you work your way up the ladder, you wait your turn, and finally you reach the top. In the 1950s, General Motors and General Electric were both run by guys named Charlie Wilson, both of whom started out in you know, the mailroom of their respective companies and <laughs> you know, over the course of decades had risen through the ranks. This was the way that success worked in America for a couple generations. With the computer industry and investment banking, on the other hand, you had a very different model, which was that you work titanic number of hours when the market is hot, when your technical skills are still fresh, and you strike it big, right? It's own, you know, there's no such thing as in this image, um, you know, a 55-year-old tech entrepreneur who finally makes it big after 30 years, right? The model is the youthful Steve Jobs, right, who becomes a billionaire before he's 30, or these days, one of the Kardashians, the youngest of the Kardashians, who is a self-made billionaire, quote unquote, at what, 19 or so. Mm -hmm. And so what we have now is this model where success is something that you chase down before your technical skills become obsolete or before the next market downturn. And so there's a very narrow window in which you can in which you can strike it big. Mm. And the presumption is that that is how you have to operate in order to be you know, in order to be a success. And then we also have these norm you know, cultural sort of all kinds of cultural messages that reinforce the idea that work should be central to one's identity that because it is central to your identity, it's something that you should do an awful lot of, and that the primary way you express your or of your loyalty to your company, your passion for your work, is through you know sort of dramatic public acts of sort of sacrificial labor, and then you know I think. The final thing is that technology has not helped this, right? That um, the fact that we can be available anywhere at any time means that we must make ourselves available anywhere at any time. And so all of these things together create a sense that long hours and overwork are 
kind of inevitable and inescapable in today's world. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we that I faced with rest and with the latest book, Shorter, was kind of unpacking that kind of system of ideas mm-hmm. and helping people ask the question, is this really necessary? Can we find other ways of working that will help us be successful, that will help us you know, do meaningful work, but which do not essentially put us in an arms race against burnout? And I think the answer is yes. So China is different, presumably, for all, <laughs> for all kinds of reasons. But, but uh, t- tell us about what you discovered about China. Well, China, Chinese companies, Chinese tech companies are, they are still very keen on the model of putting in exceptionally long hours. They have this thing that they call 996, which means working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Ouch. Yes, exactly. And it is, in a sense, an application of the model that you see in Chinese factories applied to the realm of things like, you know, chip design or e-commerce or, you know, SEO keyword marketing. It is, in a sense, a very straightforward kind of factory-like assumption about work, that the more you work, the more hours you work, the richer you'll become. Certainly, the richer the company will become. Mm-hmm. I think that Chinese companies now are are trying to figure out either a, how long they can keep this going, because they certainly know that this burns people out. This is one of the things that's responsible for or of the shockingly high rates sometimes of suicide in factories. But it's really difficult to reform a system that has made you rich. Mm-hmm. But the government is trying to figure out how to move to an economic model that emphasizes more internal consumer consumption over exports as a driver of economic growth. The idea being that if people in China work less and consume more, then essentially the Chinese economy will be more robust and more independent and less dependent upon exports. And indeed, China has shortened working hours in the past. In the 1990s, it moved from operating a six-day week to a five-day week. Yeah, I was really interested in that. And it did that in a remarkably short period of time. You know, it simply announced, as you can in a state of that sort, that, (laughs) you know, on this day, this is what the work week is going to be. And you've got a few months to figure it out. You know, while those hours have climbed back up in the tech sector, it is the case that even a place as big as China is capable of shortening working hours when there is the political consensus and the will to do so. I think it'll be really interesting to see what China does in the future, because it is now such a large economy and in many ways, such an exemplar. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has to figure out how to kind of organize their schedules around what Chinese companies do if they start to move away from 996 in a serious and systematic way, then I think more of the world will have to follow. The book 
is not theoretical, which I also very much appreciated. It's based on over a hundred companies that have already implemented shorter work hours around the globe. And it's also a very specific how-to book for our listeners who are wondering if they could implement that at their companies. So let's talk about some of the specifics, uh, some of the benefits that the companies have experienced. Sure. I think we can start with the things that companies companies are looking for when they shorten their working hours. Whether they are factories that make rice mills, as there is a case in Japan, or they make housewares, another one in, in the UK, or they're software companies or restaurants or advertising agencies, they're all dealing with the same set of problems. They're trying to figure out issues with recruitment and retention. These are industries where there's a lot of turnover. They're spending a lot of money on agency fees. And turnover is something that is disruptive to them. Mm -hmm. It's also sometimes kind of an existential threat, right? When you're a small company, you know, you're a software firm with a dozen people, let's say, losing two of those can make a gigantic impact on your ability to deliver for clients. So recruitment and retention is one thing. Another issue is sustainability. These are places whose leaders often have spent years working in high-pressure environments in big companies or famous restaurants. These are people who you know, know how to do late nights, mm-hmm. but they've reached a point in their careers and their lives where it's getting harder to sustain, but they're also experienced enough to think, this is actually kind of stupid. Yeah. Can do, you know, <laughs> we can do it differently. <laughs> they also have a sense. So, you know, the idea that you can make the work better, you can be more productive, and you can also create an environment that's more sustainable is another significant thing. And then, you know, I think the other thing that I would, um, you know, I would flag is a desire to have better work-life balance for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that pretty much that every company deals with. So what do they see on these sort of on these fronts? Well, obviously, work-life balance improves when working hours go down. That's pretty much a no-brainer, and it's what everyone, I think, would expect. Mm-hmm. But recruitment and retention, those numbers go way, way up. For example, there's a nursing home in Virginia that implemented a 30-hour work week for its certified nurses assistants. And those are the people who, you know, work with patients. They help them get dressed, get in and out of the shower. They're the people who are kind of at the very front lines of care in retirement homes. Mm -hmm. It's also a kind of work that isn't very well paid. And generally you're competing with, you know, fast food places or supermarkets for sort of for, for talent. And at least at the supermarket, you don't have people calling up and yelling about why did you know why did my mother fall? Mm-hmm. So this retirement home had annual turnover of about a hundred forty percent or so. Whoa! Yeah, so they were spending enormous amounts of money on agency fees, on temp workers when people call in sick, and they implemented a program that said, okay we're going to pay you 40 hours a week for 30 hours work. If you do these things, you know, you come in on time, you leave on time, you don't call in sick, you know, you hit all those benchmarks for that week. 
and you'll be paid 40 hours. What happened there was that turnover went from 140% to under 40%, Mm -hmm. which is a staggering drop. It was also the case that while it cost about $140,000 in extra, extra salary, because this is the sort of job where you need people on available all the time. So you simply have to hire more people if you're going to shorten, shorten shift length. They saved so much money because they didn't have to pay for temp workers or agency fees. They also were spending less because patients were happier. They were better cared for. There were fewer injuries. All of that meant that actually the company ended up spending about $20,000 once you cost it all out. So it was literally pennies per day per order per patient. So I hear again and again, these stories about, uh, about recruitment going through the roof, mm-hmm. you know, small companies being able to compete with the likes of, you know, Google or McKinsey for top shelf talent, um, people who are more senior being interested in working in small places where they otherwise you know, wouldn't look at before. And then also these companies say that productivity when they go to a four day week actually is better than when they're working five day weeks or you know, five days plus. That because of the things that you've got to do in order to make a four day week or a six hour day work, you know, you've got to tighten up your processes. You've got to think better about how you use technology. You got to really focus on the stuff that matters. All of that stuff put together means that not only are these companies able to get done in four days, what used to take them five, they're actually able to do even more work and be more productive and more profitable than they had been before. So it turns out to be a win for clients, for employees, and also for the companies. It's interesting to me to see how much slop, so to speak, there must be in the system. And I know we all know intuitively that time on the job doesn't equal productivity, but you have explained that many of the companies would first undertake a review of how their employees are spending their time. Mm -hmm. And one company found that meetings and emails took up 60% of their employees' time, which is really horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying, but not at all unusual. Uh, That's my sense, right? That there's that much slop in the system, so to speak. And when I saw you were going to talk about meetings, I just had to get up and do a little happy dance (laughs) because meetings are kind of a bugaboo for me. So what are some quick takeaways for our listeners about how to make meetings more efficient? Make them smaller, number one. Number two, Cut them in length by at least half. Mm -hmm. So if your default is an hour-long meeting, shoot for 30 minutes or even 20 minutes. You'll be amazed. Most hour-long meetings are an hour because you have, you know, at the beginning, people kind of drift in. It starts five or seven minutes late. You chat a little bit. Then you do the important work. And then you kind of chat and people check their email and stuff and pad out the remaining time. If you cut all that stuff out, or if you have a 20-minute meeting, you cut all that stuff out. 
And if you enforce the rule that, you know, the meeting starts when it starts and it ends when it ends, that, or to put it another way, you're actually going to respect people's time enough to not waste it, then most places find that they can get done in meetings in a fraction of the time what they had been doing previously. I think the other thing is circulate agendas beforehand, which is, you know, I think having a purpose to meetings is vastly underrated as a tool for keeping them on track. And then the other thing is don't have them. If you have a standing Monday morning, all hands, hour long meeting where sometimes you kind of struggle to come up with things to talk about. Oh dear. Get rid of it. Yeah. So getting meetings under control is the first important thing. It's a sort of good early win because most people like you aren't crazy about meetings and seeing that it's possible to get a hold, to get them under control, to do them in a different way and to immediately see the benefits is a great thing. And from there, you can move on to a couple other important things. And one of them is making better use of your technology so that things that previously were distractions or absorbed a lot of time become more effective. The obvious one in this case is getting email under control, or if you're in an office that uses Slack a lot, or one of these other real-time systems where people end up spending a lot of time managing those channels, using those less and more mindfully can uh, be a good way to carve out or to recapture time. And then the other big thing that plenty of offices do is that they redesign the workday. So what that means is that they often set aside blocks of time, usually in the morning, for people to work on their most important, highest demand or highest value activities. What that means is that people don't have to answer the phone or email or that one quick question that turns into a 15 minute thing Mm -hmm. in those hours, you can ignore all of that stuff and you push meetings, you push other sort of more social or lower value added things to the afternoons. And by doing this, it turns out lots of places are able to recover enough time so that everyone can go home at three o'clock. We've got these, there are studies that indicate that in most offices, meetings, email, technology distractions absorb between two and four hours of productive work time every day. Oh, yuck. And so if you can get those things under control, effectively, we live in a world in which there have been enormous improvements increases in productivity that have been buried under a rubble of bad management and technology use. And so if you can get that stuff under control, you go a long way to being able to do what had been five days worth of work in four. I'm sure I'm not alone in having had the experience of, you know, sleeping on something and kind of coming up with some interesting ideas and then being in the shower and having that aha, you know, this would be an interesting way to present this situation or this problem or a new way of looking at this. And you go into work, you're fired up and you're going to do all this stuff and you walk in the door and 
things just go sideways, right? They're, your boss calls you in. For me, since I was CFO, the CEO often wanted to call me in to talk about his shower moment. Right. And then you come back and there's all these emails and it's just, oh, the joy for the work just goes out of you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you talk about in the book is flow and productivity. And you use uh, uh, some words like mulling things over or sleeping on it. And so you have quite a bit in the book about creativity and setting up situations where you can work at your most productive. So talk to us about that. In my last book, Rest, I talked about sort of the hidden role that those kinds of moments play in the lives of really creative and prolific people. And we often talk about them as if they are these kind of mysterious, unexpected, unpredictable, and unmanageable things right? The kind of bolt out of the blue that hits you all of a sudden, this, that moment of insight that, you know, seems outside our control. In reality, what the daily lives of some of history's most creative and prolific people shows is that it's possible to set up conditions that kind of nudge those, nudge those moments that sort of encourage them. What happens is that for people like, let's say, you know, Beethoven, or Charles Darwin or Nobel Prize winners, they often end up with daily routines in which they work very intensively for only a few hours a day, like four or five hours. And they spend an awful lot of time doing activities that at first glance don't look at all productive, working in the garden, going on long walks, (laughs) bike rides, things of that sort. But it turns out that those those apparently unproductive leisure activities, especially when done immediately after bouts of hard thinking, provide a kind of groundwork for those for sort of those moments of insight. Essentially what happened, what's going on is that your creative subconscious continues working on unsolved problems even when you've gotten up out off your desk and are going and doing something else. Mm -hmm. And by designing days to layer periods of focused work and what I call in the book, deliberate rest, creative people are able to set aside time in their day to generate more of those kinds of insights. And to some degree, what companies that move to four day weeks are doing is a similar version of this. And at the very least, what they're doing is giving people more time in their weeks for the sorts of activities that are incubators for those kinds of creative moments. You know, one of the things that you sometimes hear as an objection to the four-day week is, well, you know, I'm always thinking about my work, about these really interesting problems, so why would I ever want to stop? Hmm. You know, the answer to that is part of your mind, you're correct that part of your mind never stops working on them, but there's a difference between that kind of work, quote unquote, and being at your desk for 12 hours a day. Yeah. And in fact, if you're in a kind of business where creativity matters, where problem solving is important, where being able to examine problems in a new light from a new angle matters. I think we all know that there is a real difference between trying to do that, sitting at your desk and doing it 
out on the hike, you know, at your desk, but also out on the hiking trail. And we all have that experience of having those moments in unexpected or non-work places of suddenly having these really interesting ideas. <laughs> so what these companies and what these people are doing is designing time that makes more of those possible and enjoying the benefits of, you know, more time out in the woods or, you know, more time with family or more time, more time doing hobbies that also helps them be more creative and ultimately more productive. You mentioned in the book, you're talking about benefits of shorter work weeks. And you said at the risk of making it sound like this junk emails, just this one weird trick <laughs> will solve all these problems. But one of the things that you talk about, which is kind of one of those one weird trick is the idea that if you have a shorter work week, you could invite those professional women who have dropped out of the workforce. And we've talked about that some on this podcast, mm -hmm. but that's a common problem for professional women once they have their second child to drop out and to uh, cease working, go home and take care of children. And it's such a loss for us as a, as a workforce and as an economy to have these women right when they're hitting their stride, often well-educated women. And yet if we did have shorter work weeks, that would open the opportunity for them to come back uh, to the workforce. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. This actually was one of the things that I was really interested in trying to address in this book, but hadn't actually expected to be able to sort of to speak to it as much as I did. When I was promoting rest, I almost always got a question along the lines of, you know, it sounds great to be able to get more rest, but if you are a working mom or you're a, you know, you're a single mother who's a professional, how do you put this stuff into practice? And it made me realize that while we should all recognize that we have more control over our time often than we think, and that we live in a world that sort of conspires to create the sense that we can never and should never want to switch off and that doing so is merely a waste of time. It's also the case that our workplaces and work expectations make it really, really difficult to do that. In particular, for women, and especially women who are expected to you know, work as if they don't have children, to raise children as if they don't have careers, to do both at exactly the same time to some impossibly high yet nebulous standard, and then to be blamed as individuals if they don't do both to you know, society's vague yet perfect expectations. I think that you know, one of the great lessons I got from, or, uh, from working on Shorter was that you know, we treat these, we treat these issues about balancing parenthood and work-life balance and sort of career development and motherhood as if every single person has to figure out their own solution. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are, there are literally millions of people who face this challenge, largely women, but a growing number of men suggests that, you know, 
thinking that it's just about leaning in or it's just about, you know, it's just about finding the right tips and tricks mm-hmm. turns out to be wrong. I also realized when I was writing this book that, you know, the last thing any woman needs is life advice from a middle-aged guy, right? Or of they've, you know, most, most women have had enough guys in their lives telling them sort of what they're doing wrong and how they can do it better, <laughs> which is another reason that I thought focusing on the structural changes was where I could make a little bit of a difference. But when you get into these companies and you talk about the recruitment and you talk about who they're looking for and who applies, one of the things that comes up all the time is that number one, they get a lot of resumes from mothers who have been in pretty high-powered positions, who've had to go part-time or who have had to leave the workforce because they couldn't want to, because they couldn't do 60-hour weeks any longer, and also because they've realized 60-hour weeks are kind of dumb. <laughs> Second, in most companies, there is a penalty for being a parent. In companies that work six-hour days or four-day weeks, there is a premium that parents can demand because what these companies need are people who are able to focus, who can prioritize ruthlessly, who know how to deal with one task, you know, to knock out one task and then another and then another and then make the deadline and then go home. Mm-hmm. Who is it who develops those particular skills? Turns out, of course, parents. In most conventional companies, what you reward is the ability to sit at your desk for 12 hours a day. In companies that are doing four-day weeks, what you are rewarding is an ability to get stuff done quickly, to prioritize, to focus, and then to move on. And so those particular skills are ones that you look for, not an ability to spend long hours working at a task, but the ability to spend a small number of hours working at it. And so as a consequence, not only is it an environment in which working parents find a greater ability to manage both their working lives and to develop as professionals, and also to be able to leave at three o'clock to pick up kids, and generally to have more time with family. But the companies themselves also benefit from a more skilled, more experienced, more senior workforce than they're normally able to compete for. It's another example of something that is a win-win for both. (laughs) And it turns out to be a simple yet very elegant solution to a set of large-scale economic problems, but also to a set of personal and individual problems that every single one of us faces and which we've been trying which we've largely been trying to solve by ourselves one of the things you talk about is the flexibility stigma mm-hmm. and when i read that i thought well <laughs> i've heard that cuz so i was listening to some recruiters talk to each other and one of them said to the other one kind of disgustedly Yeah, and they always say what they need is flexibility. And she was talking about women 
And she said, you never hear guys say that. You never hear the candidates say that, that they need flexibility. And I thought, well, <laughs> well, there's a good reason for that. She needs flexibility because she's taking care of children at home. And it's funny how that has, in this culture that you're describing of having to be at your desk for 12 hours, how this request for quote unquote flexibility is interpreted as weakness and not a team player and, you know, kind of all these bad things without any acknowledgement that somebody has to be raising, raising the children. And one thing I also wanted to say about flexibility is that I've worked in a number of organizations that have implemented, and since you're in California, you've probably heard of this too, this 980 uh, working option where you can work uh, for 10-hour days, and then the following week, you'll have Friday off. Right. And it, I have been uh, not a fan of this because it just creates a lot of chaos in the workplace where no one can remember who's whose day it is to be off on Friday. So you're constantly on Fridays looking for people and saying, oh, you know, is this their, her Friday off? Is this his Friday off? Because we are, it's not synchronized, right? Everybody has that Friday off at a different time. And you talked about this in the book about the need to, to not just throw flexibility willy-nilly to the winds, but do this in a, in a rational way. Yeah, I think that the challenge that companies face and or uh, you know or teams face is there's an awful lot of coordination work that ends up having to be done when you've got people working on multiple different schedules, right? When you've got one person doing it, that creates a kind of us versus them situation where first off there is even in well-meaning companies a measure of resentment or caution about whether the person who's working flexibly can really be available when necessary, can, you know, can deliver the goods, et cetera. And so it means that on the part of employers or teams, you know, the person who's working flexibly often ends up at something of a disadvantage when it comes to being put on interesting projects or promotion. For the person working flexibly, of course, they're often having to work more in order to try to do the work of staying connected to their colleagues, to staying visible to their manager, and you know, doing all of that stuff while still you know, making it to childcare by 3.15 and trying to lead a life in which they're not inconveniencing their employer. Mm-hmm. And the virtue of the four-day week or other kinds of shorter work weeks is that it puts everybody on the same schedule, thereby eliminating the stigma of being the one person in the office who isn't working the same way or the same amount as everybody else, while also maintaining the, well, eliminating the extra overhead of connect of work that goes into having to stay connected when you're that one person who's working flexibly. The other reason that you don't hear men talking about this is revealed in a study by a Boston University professor named Aaron Reed, who was looking at the different ways that men and women manage flexibility at a big consulting company. And what she found was that the men actually worked as flexibly as the women 
They just did it in secret. Mm -hmm. So what they did was, you know, you would horse trade with your colleague about who worked on this project this month and this project the next month so that you weren't having to fly to Frankfurt every two weeks to present. And so you'd spend a little less time on planes while you're, you know, sort of while your spouse was busy at her job. The other thing was that their absence in the office was interpreted differently than the absence of women. So if a guy left to go to the kid's softball game, the bosses assumed, oh, he's out pitching clients. Uh If a woman was out of the office, the assumption was, oh, she's picking up the children. Mm -hmm. And so while the guys are doing this kind of informal horse training stuff in order to get themselves more flexibility, the women were actually following the rules and going through the channels and consequently, unintentionally, making themselves targets Mm -hmm. for flexibility stigma. So shortening working hours serves as a way of eliminating the problems that even the best intentioned companies haven't been able to figure out and making sure that people who need flexibility or who need shorter working hours are able to get them without sacrificing sacrificing their careers or the company having to sacrifice their talent. One thing it'd be fun to talk about is how people spend that extra day that they mm-hmm. have in the case when you go to a four-day work week. And I was amused at the one woman who said that she couldn't do it before very easily, but what she really enjoyed doing on her day off was making marmalade. Yep. But it makes such a terrible mess that unless you have the Friday off beforehand so you can take care of your life admin stuff, then uh, making marmalade is just sort of impossible because it makes such a mess in the kitchen. And some of the things that you discovered, I was really thrilled at. Um, So let's talk about that you found that people didn't necessarily take on a second job, but that frequently people spent more time exercising, which I did a little happy dance about that, and also spending time with their children. Right. So the main things people do are what the Brits call life admin, which is when the dishwasher has to be delivered or when you've got to go to the doctor, you do that on the Friday or whatever day off you've got now. The second thing is exercise, time with family and hobbies. And what people talk about is how, you know, when you're working five days, you've got, especially if you've got kids, Saturday is football games or other sports stuff, or you're driving kids to, you know, to practices or to lessons. And then Sunday is the day when you've got to try and get everything together. You do the housework and you try and get set for the next week. Whereas when you've got three days, you've got a full day that, you know, especially if the kids are in school, you've got to your more or less to yourself. And there's a huge difference between having that day and then another two days in terms of recovery, self-care, being able to you know, devote time to you know, extracurricular activities or creative stuff. And I think the evidence is that it makes a very big difference in people's individ- you know, personal quality of life. It makes a big difference for families. And it also means that people are healthier, 
because they're in better shape or they're able to go go to the doctor or you know, go shopping and actually cook decent meals rather than mic, you know microwave another box. And they feel better connected to friends, to family, to their kids. In one company that did a six-hour day, one of the moms said that she was able to pick up her kid from school at a time when the kid was still in a good mood. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, two hours later, they're hungry, they get in the car, they melt down, and, you know, you've got to deal with this now. And she said that it made all the difference in the world to yeah. her relationship with her daughter. I think anybody who's a parent understands the difference that those two hours can make in the quality of your relationship with your children. So it's an example of how what seems like a relatively small change in scheduling at the right time can make an enormous difference in quality of life. And you better believe also that that person would now take a bullet for the company Mm-hmm. because it's helped make this possible. Again, it's something that's tremendous for families, but it's something that in the longer run benefits employers and companies as well. Well, I didn't have a chance to get to all of my questions, but I'll leave a couple of teasers here for my listeners. And one is that Alex does talk in his book about how clients would react in case you're thinking to yourself, oh, my clients would never put up with this. And then he also talks some, although not a great deal, uh, which I would like to explore more, is the effect on the planet if you have fewer people Uh, commuting to work on uh, a particular day. So those two are also in the book, um, but as they used to say in school, if you want to find out the rest of the story, you can buy the book. But Alex, I was wondering if you would like to tell the listeners how they could follow your work or find the book or anything else that you'd like them to know. So the book will be out um, in the United States March 10th. It's published by Public Affairs, and it'll be available Everywhere, you know, fine books are sold, as they say. And then if you want to keep up with the work, uh, the my website is strategy.rest. Rest is now, happily for me, a top-level domain. Hmm. And so I'm continuing to find new companies that are shortening their work weeks, talking to their leaders and their employees, telling their stories That's also where you can find out more information about other appearances or of talks, workshops, that sort of thing. And then on Twitter and Instagram and elsewhere, um, I am AskPang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. So that's where you can find me. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show, Alex. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. 
You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work.